As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. We've reached the end of another series of Bring Back V10s, but don't be sad because that also means it's time to sign off in style by answering another brilliant selection of questions submitted by our audience during Series 7. We've been doing this since the very first series of the show, and it's a testament to those of you listening that you never stop coming up with new and interesting things to ask us. By this point, I have faith that we could do these episodes for eternity and we'd never run out of questions to answer. So joining me, Glenn Freeman, to see us across the finish line in Series 7 are Ed Straw, Gary Anderson and Matt Beer. Ed, thanks for taking a break from regaling our new Twitter community with bizarre tales from F1's past to take on some questions. When you look through the list that we've got today, which one are you most looking forward to? Well, I can almost say it's one that I most enjoyed because there was one question that was quite an open one that gave me a good excuse to sift back through the whole era, looking at people down the lower reaches of the order, which I think is always a good thing. I won't give away exactly what, but you'll know when you get there. And Matt, which question caught your eye the most? The one that lets me talk about people underachieving in Champ Car. <laughs> yeah, I saw that one coming. Uh, Gary, good to have you with us. As always, we had a few sort of Jordan questions and some technical slash car design questions that I think it's pretty clear were aimed uh, at you. So we'll throw those to you in a bit. But which one are you most intrigued to get into today? I think the uh, Barrichello on the front row in Brazil is a good one. You know, it's his home race and... Uh... It was obviously a, a fairly difficult year for us, but being in the front row against all the competition is always a good one. Yeah, that'll be fun. And uh, it's very handy when someone asks a very specific Jordan question that uh, we've got the guy who was on the pit wall and had designed those cars. Now, if you'd love to hear us answer more audience questions, or if you have a burning question that we haven't got around to answering, the good news is there are two ways you can put that right after this series. That won't happen again. But firstly, as always, we'll be recording an exclusive bonus episode for the Race Members Club where we take questions only from our members and that will be released in their uh, exclusive private feed. So if you'd like to join to get your question in, head to the-race.com forward slash members club where you can also find out more about all the other benefits on offer if you sign up. But we have a very special different opportunity also coming up where you can ask us anything about any era 
of F1 history. And that's for a special charity episode we'll be recording in early April, raising money for the race's official charity partner, Blood Cancer UK. For those of you that don't know, in 2019, I was diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia, which is a form of blood cancer. And thanks to the huge advances made with the support of charities like Blood Cancer UK, I get to live a perfectly normal life now simply by taking one tablet a day with a diagnosis that it's not an exaggeration to say would have been a death sentence just 20 years ago. That is the rate of progress that's being made with all the research that's being funded and carried out by these great causes. So we are very, very happy to be supporting them. We've been doing various things here at the race to raise thousands of pounds over the last 12 months and this will be our final fling so uh, as it's a cause that's very personal to me, we're making a Bring Back V10s themed fling. All the rules are being thrown out of the window and you can go to any era with this one. To submit a question, all you have to do is head to our Just Giving page. We'll put the link in the description of this episode, but it's justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash the hyphen race hyphen media. Make a donation and then submit your question as a comment with your donation. We've had loads of questions already and plenty of them from outside the V10 era. So we'll be talking Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg at Mercedes, Ayrton Senna at Lotus, Felipe Massa's V8 era peak and much, much more. As I said, we're recording that in early April and unlike the members special, this will be released in our main feed. So head over to that page, get your question in now. And thank you so, so much to everyone who has helped us support Blood Cancer UK over the last 12 months. I'll also be posting about this in the Bring Back V10's Twitter community. So if you'd like to join hundreds of fans of the V10 era while we're between series, there'll be a few months off, obviously, for the show, but we'll still be active in our community. Head to the communities button on Twitter and search for Bring Back V10s to come in and join us. One last thing before we get going, I wanted to thank everyone who contacts us via our email address, bringbackv10s at the hyphenrace.com. Some of you send in questions. Some of those questions are in this episode. Others just get in touch to say nice things about the show, which is always welcome. We always, we really appreciate your feedback. Um, so many emails come into that inbox that it's impossible for me to reply to all of them. But we'll do some shout outs here to people who've got in touch during Series 7. So thank you to, among many others, Tom Burton, Aidan Pass, Jay Menon, David Smith, uh, Bart Stork, Graham Knapp, Dan Ross, David Oldroyd, and so many more of you. I promise I do read them all, even if I can't respond to all of them. Right, let's start with a question that gets to the very heart of this podcast, or, or at least its name. Uh, Gary, we had a question from Negative, who asks... Would the creation of green fuel in F1 create the possibility for a V8, V10 and V12 return? Well, I think um, my answer to that would be negative. Um, <laughs> no, no pun meant. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think we're down this path now where, you know, all the cars are going um, with some different type of propulsion or a hybrid of the different types of propulsion. So I think we're going to stay with that for the foreseeable future and probably even further than that. You know, we'd all love to get the noise, the shrill of a 20,000 RPM V10 or whatever. Um, because we, I think it was an era where we all sort of enjoyed it. But I, I think those days have gone. We are going to have this this continual um, change in the regulations. 
And and again, I suppose one of the big questions is, you know, what is green fuel? You know, obviously what we see today as green fuel in 10 years' time could be a very different package. So it's just about keeping up with the times. And I think what Formula One is doing is trying to lead those times as best possible um, and be ahead of the game a little bit, which, you know, again, if it can help with normal road car um design and specification if Formula One can lead the way a little bit then it deserves to do that so um, I think we're, we're going down the path we are and I think it'll be there for a long time and F1's very much set out its stall to make the conventional part of the engine the non-competition parts that's the way it tends to be referred to so it'll be the actual fuel composition and then the hybrid elements that are the areas where you can really make the gains fun as it would be to have more different configurations Yep, we'll just have to keep the podcast going then for everybody who loves V10s. Uh, Matt, Gavin Richardson asks, how do you think Bruno Junquera would have done in F1 if he got the nod in the pre-season shootout against Jensen Button at Williams in 2000? Well, who remembers how well Christian Ardemata and Sebastian Bourdais' F1 careers went? I think roughly roughly along those lines, which sounds like a bit of an insult, but... um, Junkira was was a very respectable reserve driver for Williams. He was a, a decent Formula Three thousand driver and eventually champion. But he didn't. I didn't. Th- I don't think he excelled in F three thousand compared to say when he finished fifth in nineteen ninety nine. The year before, he would have got the Williams gig potentially. The, the most interesting talents in that field, apart from dominant champion Nick Heidfeld, were probably Gonzalo Rodriguez, who died in the champ car crash at the end of that year, and Jason Watt, who ended up paralysed in the motorbike crash at the end of that year. Junkira uh, was fifth. Um, you know, that was fine, but it, you know, he didn't look like a superstar. And then when he went to Champ Car, or what was it, about a cart Champ Car at that point, um, he d- he wasn't as much of a kind of standout talent among the Brazilian pack as De Mata or Helio Castro Neves or Tony Canaan. He did some really interesting things. I thought his eventual seasons with Dale Coyne Racing were his most impressive. He, he didn't ever really become a convincing title contender with Ganassi or Newman Haas. He was runner-up a few times in the championship, but quite distantly each time. I think basically the kind of summary is a lot of people who ended up in Kart Champ Car did a lot better than Junkera did over there and still failed in F1. So I think he would have been an absolutely adequate uh, drop-in for Williams when they uh, stopped persisting with, with Alex Zanardi. And another person did a lot better in Champ Car than Junkera and then failed in F1 at that point. Um, but when Williams took the gamble on Jensen Button straight out of Formula 3 instead, that was so much more of an inspired move. I, I couldn't see Junkera lasting more than a season at Williams before they looked somewhere else, and that probably would have been the extent of his F1 career. Um, at least he would have had an F1 career, but I don't think anyone missed a massive trick not not giving him one, really. Yeah, I think uh, Jensen Button's F1 career suggested Williams made the right decision there. Ed, Liam asks, given the advances in barrier technology, do you think the original Tamburello corner at Imola could be made safe for F1 again? I still look at that chicane and think what a crying shame it had to be put in. Yeah, you you can make just about any corner safe for F1 with sufficient runoff. So a corner with Tamburello's profile isn't fundamentally a problem. And as mentioned, there is an advance in barrier technologies, although I still think they don't really want impacts in that high speed into say the um i was going to say the safer barrier the tech pro barriers that's the uh the, the one for f1 but there's quite a few limitations there have a look on google earth if you want to get a good idea of this but 
the local geography basically there's a load of trees adjacent to the track there i'm not 100 percent sure whether they're absolutely protected or not it is a sort of protected area for for nature so you might not be allowed to chop them down but certainly there's no interest in chopping them down even if you did there's the problem of the santerno river right behind it as well so i don't think you could put the runoff in and you can't move the corner the corner forward because there's various facilities on the inside of the track there's a running track tennis courts bits and pieces so i don't think it, it really works I'd also say I'm not really sure what you gain from doing it because not only is it that horrible ill-starred corner given there were so many crashes there before the the Senna one so many warnings that weren't heeded and it would also be very easy flat in a modern F1 car it wouldn't really be a corner in fact it was pretty much that in those days as well so I'm not I'm not sure what it adds and actually that Villeneuve chicane it's a pretty fast one I actually quite like it if you watch onboards on qualifying laps you can really see where the committed drivers gain time so I don't think it works geographically, and I'm not entirely sure why you'd like to do it. But certainly that that Villeneuve chicane, uh, Nuvolari chicane rather, is actually quite a nice S. I quite like it. Yeah, that's interesting. I've, I've always thought that if they were to try to bring it back, it would have to be in a kind of toned down way, like they did with 130R at Suzuka, where they, they changed the trajectory slightly uh, and just made the corner less challenging. As you say, Ed, Modern cars, it's been a long time since that corner has existed. For modern cars, it would be, I mean, if they're done accelerating by then, which I guess it would be, it's, it's just, it's a curve for them to kind of negotiate their way around. Um, yeah, of all the chicanes we've had since Imola 94, the one at Tamburello wouldn't be probably in the bottom 25 of them. Uh, at least it's a proper little sequence of corners. Uh now, Gary, this one's interesting. You, of course, crossed paths during your time in F1 with Tom Walkinshaw. Simon Yankowski says, Tom seemed like many teams' saviour and the next big dreamer after Eddie Jordan during the 90s. Do you think he would have ever had the capability to deliver for his teams with the right backing? So Eddie Jordan, a dreamer, eh? That is a thing. Um, <laughs> Why um, the next? No, you know, Eddie and him were, were very alike in the way that, you know, they, they, they saw past all the hurdles that were in the way um, of getting there. I think uh, Tom's, you know, his biggest problem was he, he, he used his muscle, I think is the best way of putting it, to sort of try and make it happen. You know, he didn't sort of stand back and allow it to happen or or try to be the figurehead of something happening. And Tom was always the man, you know, that, that he just tried to muscle his way through everything. And I, I, I actually remember having a chat with him about working for him. And uh, to get out of the room, I, I, I had to agree. You know, he, he just wouldn't let me go. Um, we, we definitely had a few glasses of red wine, um, and it was a funny evening. But at the end of the day, you know, you just could not say no. Um, so it was always difficult to... To understand that philosophy, I, I also attended a couple of meetings um, with his sort of technical group at the time, and Brian Hart was a very good colleague of mine. It was just after they took over the Brian Hart engine package, and you know that again was all just muscle. You know, he just muscled Brian into submission. Um, so I, I think his 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 whole attitude to it was that he believed that he could achieve, and that's what you're saying about. You know, with the right backing, yes, probably. You know, anybody, uh, anybody, I suppose, with the right backing could put together a package of people. But Tom wasn't willing to stand back and allow that package of people to function. He he was in there both feet first, uh, kicking and screaming. And, you know, he had some good people around him at times. 
Um, and it, you know, it, it didn't pull it off. And that mainly was down to the fact of standing back and allowing at the time to take place because I think his promises to sponsors and associates were uh, greater than the sort of time given to achieve those promises. So I liked the bloke because he was a racer, a real hard racer down to, you know, down to the last nail. He would just push and push and push and push. As a driver, he did the same thing. So um, it's a pity he didn't really succeed 100%, but I suppose relatively he did succeed. So I don't know. I don't know what the, the outcome would be if he had had the, you know, the Mercedes backing or the Red Bull backing that's around now. Um, but in his time with what he had, it, it didn't really work to his satisfaction. Gary, I'm really intrigued now by you saying you, you had a chat with Tom about working for him. So was this, if he'd just taken over Hart, are we talking like 98 when you had left Jordan? I'm trying to think of what arrows you'd have ended up designing, basically. <laughs> yeah, it was it was around that time. Um, yeah, I mean, it was one of those sort of situations where obviously I, whenever I left Jordan, I, I, I left Jordan without a job because I didn't want to leave because I had another job. I left Jordan with nothing to, 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 take, to, to, uh, to go to. So after that, I sort of started having a chat around to see what was going on. And I chatted to Tom and I chatted to Alan Pross and I chatted to Jackie Stewart. And all of those were, you know, feasible solutions. Um, but then you, you sort of have to buy into the one you think that actually got the most commitment in the longer term. And I felt it was Jackie and his commitment to Formula One, his backing with Ford, um, his, his true understanding. I, I liked talking to Jackie, totally different person to, uh, to Tom Wilkinshaw. As I say, it was all it was all muscle be Tom. You know, you start work with me next Monday, blah blah blah, just forcing you into a corner. Whereas Jackie was putting you the the opportunities to the reasons to join his team because this is where he was trying to get to. So totally different attitude completely. And Jackie was a lovely guy to work for. I think if I had worked for Tom, I, I really wouldn't have stuck it very long because again, when I had the meetings with uh, with him through Brian Hart. Um, it was all about muscle. It was, you know, you do it my way or you, you, know, you won't do it at all type thing. No matter who you were in the, in the room, that was the plan. You know, he was telling Brian how to build engines on one, one side and he was telling the designers how to design the car and on the other side. So you had no room to sort of express yourself, I suppose you might call it. So, uh, but I, again, as I say, I love racers and he was definitely a racer. So it's a bit of a pity he never really succeeded. But whenever you think of the things he did with um with the arrows that he ran at Silverstone. Um, I think it was Orange that was sponsoring it at the time, you know. And uh, my daughter was doing a bit of work for Orange at the time. She does some you know, PR work and, and uh, event stuff. And uh, she actually had like 100 people from Orange um, at the race meeting. And the objective was to try to convince them that they were racing. Um, and they weren't actually out on the track. So it was a quite a difficult task for her. And I, I was keeping her informed on little bits and pieces of what was going on to make sure she could tell them the truth. But they, you know, the, the sponsors were there and the sponsors didn't actually realise that the, the cars weren't competing. The interesting thing with Walkinshaw is it's always considered to be a matter of when, not if, he'd succeed in F1. That was the perception. Because it had this phenomenal success in touring cars and in sports cars that it just always seemed that, just question of when the stars would align and arrows probably in that period when they got a hill in and everything was the point where that seemed to happen but yeah it just never quite seemed to work and I do suspect it was what Gary alluded to perhaps Tom Walkinshaw didn't quite have that the necessary 
ability just to stand that little bit back from it because of course he was a driver of some quality so he's always very heavily involved in that so maybe he did need to be more of a an Eddie Jordan figure in terms of focusing on that rather than getting quite so heavily involved because yeah it was a strange one it, it was ultimately just the the lack of funding that meant that never realized its potential and he was always sort of limping on until arrows eventually closed down yeah, I think, you know, to sort of sum it up, I think you could say I didn't see any patience in Tom. He wanted it all to happen tomorrow. If the slightest opportunity was there, it had to happen tomorrow. Um, and, you know, it never, it never does that. It's always lovely if it can do, but it never actually does that. So sometimes you have to stand back a little bit and give it its time to, to evolve. And Tom didn't have the patience for that, for sure. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Right, let's crack on with uh, the question we've chosen from Chris United 93 who always sends us plenty of them. This is the one we've picked this time, Chris. Matt, it's for you. Uh, Chris says, it's widely believed that Michael Schumacher would have won the 96 title if he'd stayed at Benetton, but could he have won the 97 title with them? Right, there's two ways of looking at this. If Schumacher never leaves Benetton and all the people who are there with him never leave Benetton, then... I see Schumacher and Benetton carrying on winning titles probably until McLaren gains its strength with Adrian Newey. You know, Schumacher and Benetton going through 96 into 97 with momentum is a stronger package than Jacques Villeneuve and Heinz Harold Frentzen at Williams with Adrian Newey on the way out of the door there. So, yes, absolutely. If if we ignore all the historical context and Schumacher walks into Benetton at the start of 97 with the car that's there and the people that are there, then he's relying on on Villeneuve and Williams making a really, really, really big mess of 97 to have a title shot. Because by that time, after that year with uh, with Gerhard Berger and Jean Alesi, Benetton is looking so lost. It's particularly struggling for qualifying pace a lot of the time in a year when Goodyear is being beaten by Bridgestone on qualifying pace quite a lot. It has some very strong races. I mean, Gerhard Berger does win for it at Hockenheim that year. There's actually some slightly underrated Jean Alesi race drives that year, but there's maybe like four of them in a 17 race season. That's the level of um, Alesi performance consistency that that you've got there are lots of races where that Benetton is like two seconds off the pace in qualifying now I, I can see Schumacher getting it around the track eight tenths to a second faster than the Lacey and Berger were doing but I don't see him being two seconds quicker on raw pace so even though it got eight podium finishes that year I, and you could sort of see Schumacher building a title challenge out of a car that can get eight podiums with Berger and the Lacey I think it is a step too far by given how damaged and lost Benetton's got by that point but if he never leaves Benetton Benetton never stops winning titles yeah, I like the interpretation of of dropping him back into a Benetton that's kind of has lost some of its best people and, and purely going, can he win the title in the 97 car they had? And I agree, I don't think he would, but he would have got more out of it than 
than Berger and Alacy. Uh, Ed, the next question's for you. It's from Mike Noon. I think the answer to this one might be quite a quick one. Uh, Mike asks, why did Dome never make it onto the F1 grid? Yeah, they're part of a great subgenre of F1 teams in this period, of ones that actually made cars but never made it to the grid. Dams is another one that I always enjoy from this period, obviously the Honda project. And the answer really is the oldest and simplest of all, which is just lack of budget. To give a slightly longer answer, obviously it's, Dome is a really well-respected, well-established racing car manufacturer in Japan, and in fact still is today, and probably they're that because they didn't go all in on F1 even if it wasn't a good idea financially and obviously the financial situation in Japan in that period it, it, it went through that period where it had grown rapidly the economy and then it was a bit shaky through then so getting the money on board to, for this all Japan F1 project didn't really uh, didn't really happen but yeah they made the car the F105 Mugen Honda engine wanted to join in 97 originally Marco Apicella tested it, Shinji Nakano was involved, Nike Hattori drove it as well, who'd done a couple of attempts to qualify in a Colony in 91, and they they ran, I think, at Suzuka after 96. Weren't especially quick, but they had problems getting tyres, because there was a suspicion it was some sneaky Bridgestone uh, test programme attempt to get hold of Goodyear tyres, so Goodyear would only give them very, very narrow uh, range of slightly out-of-date tyres. There was also suggestions that it was a Honda secret project which also it wasn't because obviously there was a honda slightly secret project also going on uh, in broadly the same time so there was a lot of mystery and suspicion surrounding it but i think it was just a, a racing car manufacturer that wanted to get onto the grid and sensibly run enough not to destroy itself to do so they kept trying for a while actually um after they stopped running the f105 they did resurrect it a little bit later as well they were talking to the uh, the famous Prince Malik Addo Ibrahim as well at one stage about a possible entry but it just never really quite came together which in some ways is a shame and in other ways is probably a good thing so they didn't go the same way as say Lola which obviously got onto the grid a little bit too quickly but yeah fundamentally just didn't have the the cash to get together but wouldn't it have been great if there was a proper all Japanese F1 team which is what the first iteration of this was going to be. Yeah, I was always fascinated by this car. I think because it ran, it ran quite a bit. If you've never seen it before, there is footage of it on YouTube. Just uh, search for sort of dome F1 car testing or something like that, and then it will come up. Uh, would have been cool to see, but yeah, just as for so many teams, the the money the money wasn't there. Uh, Chris Robinson has our next question, and Chris asks, who was the best politician? in the V10 era. Now, Gary, I'm going to give that one to you. You were rubbing shoulders with these people every couple of weeks. Who would you uh, give the title of best politician to? Well, I think there was two. Um, and it's the, the Bernie and Max show, I suppose you might call it, really. I think they were the two politicians through that era that were way above anybody else. As far as within the teams, you know, no, I don't think there was anything dramatic going on. I think everybody at that period of time was were pretty much racers you know they were there to do the best job they could within a set of regulations but um you know as we saw through time uh things kept changing um and it, it mainly kept from from max and bernie sort of either um disagreeing with them or agreeing with them and you never really knew where you stood with the two of them you know if you had meetings with them as we did a lot of meetings after Ayrton Senna's accident in 94 uh, about controlling performance controlling cars you know they were they were quite incredible you knew that what they started talking about there was there was some sort of sidestep going to be taken at some point in time and you never knew what it was going to be so for all the teams it was quite quite confusing but I think 
you know, if there was two politicians that ever had a reputation within Formula One, it would be the Bernie and Max show. And they, they were great at it because, again, as I say, they never, they never sort of appeared to agree, but they never appeared to disagree. There was always something in the underlying current they were trying to achieve somewhere along the line. And that had to be planned. It had to be planned well in advance. You know, it wasn't, you just couldn't work away from some of the proposals they put forward. You, you couldn't work from there to get to where they got to. You know, the, the end result would have to be seen well before they put out the, the seeds for to uh, to get some sort of uh, change make, made. Um, so yeah, I think those two would be my would be my candidates. Not a team, but those two for sure. Yeah, the uh, the team bosses couldn't quite live up to that double act. the The next two questions are both related to Damon Hill losing the nineteen ninety four World Championship. So we'll kind of we'll tackle them in succession. Matt, you can have the first one. Paul Lucas asks, who would have won the 1994 Australian Grand Prix had Michael Schumacher not slid off the track? Now, obviously, Schumacher uh, slid off while leading the race, hit the wall, and seconds later drove in to Damon Hill, which put them both out of the race. So if Schumacher doesn't make that initial error and go off the track, we had, I think it was 30-odd laps of absolutely brilliant charging battling between the two of them. They were flat out driving away from everybody, what do you think would have happened in the second half of the race, Matt? Oh, I found this one really hard because I cannot see a situation in which this does not end with Schumacher crashing into Damon Hill. <laughs> I, just, I just do not think... With, with what we saw about how Schumacher would handle title deciders through that period later on, I just don't see another outcome now. So the answer is still Nigel Mansell then? I think, it, yeah, sadly. <laughs> sadly, I think the answer is still Nigel Mansell win. Just to kind of justify that a little bit more. Yeah, you know, Although they end up in the title fight, for most of that season, Hill was so far behind Schumacher. He only scored big points, only one if Schumacher did something daft, like when he got penalised at Silverstone, if Schumacher's car broke like it did in Spain, or if Schumacher was banned for various things like he was for uh, Monza and Estoril. The, the tiny points gap was completely false until it comes to Suzuka when, just not exactly out of nowhere, but Hill finds that incredible performance in the saturated track and actually beats Schumacher in incredible conditions. And then Adelaide, absolutely all over Schumacher, nose to tail. Damon's found that within himself through confidence, momentum, belief. So I, on pace, I think Damon Hill was going to be the rightful winner of that race, but I cannot see Schumacher not turning in on Hill as soon as Hill gets alongside him given how Schumacher acted both in Adelaide 94 and Jerez 997 with Villeneuve. So the answer is, should have been Hill, would have been Mansell. Yeah, that's that's my, yeah, it wouldn't have been Schumacher. Fascinating. So to follow on from that, uh, Ed, you can take this one. Colin O'Hanlon asks, what effect would Damon Hill winning the 1994 championship have on F1 for the rest of the 90s? Colin says, could Damon have won in 95 as well? And then if you add that to his 96 title, he would have had three championships in a row. And what would it have done for Schumacher's reputation if he hadn't won those first two titles at Benetton? Yeah, it's quite an interesting question. I think you have to look at the effect on Hill first, because we've talked in the past about how difficult 95 was for him. I'm sure had he won the championship in 94, that would have meant he was a more confident, settled driver in 95. So I suspect he'd have had a better season. He just still had a big fight on his hands to win that world championship because Schumacher in that Benetton was a very, very quick driver. But I think Hill would have been stronger. Williams probably would still have been a little bit untidy. And the underachievement in 95 wasn't solely at the door of the drivers, certainly. The team made life a little bit difficult. It still wasn't there on strategy. But I think 
you could probably conclude Hill's 95 would have been stronger. Therefore, Williams probably wouldn't have decided to get rid of him. Maybe they'd never have bothered to get Jack Villeneuve and you'd have ended up with a Hill-Frentzen lineup at some stage because obviously DC had the McLaren stuff that was going on. That was preordained from quite early on. So I wonder if that would be the effect. I think Schumacher would have been recognised as a as a superstar, whatever happens, because even if Hill wins 94, there's all the caveats attached to that. I know you can question the Benetton, as many people do, but obviously there were the bands and the, the lost points, etc. So Schumacher would still have been the best driver of 94. He might well have still been the best driver of 95, could have won the championship. So I'm not sure how profound an impact it has on it. Maybe Ferrari might not have been willing to quite splash the same cash with confidence. So perhaps it might have led to that Ferrari project being slightly more half-baked in terms of just going in and getting everyone from Benetton. But I'm not sure it would have had so profound an impact beyond that driver market effect. So then you start getting questions of what might have happened with that whole, as we mentioned before, the TWR Arrows thing. If Hill wasn't available, who do they go for? Does that make any difference? Probably not a great deal because the problems are still there. But yeah, I think it probably would have raised Hill's stock, certainly. And it would have meant if he were, were to have left Williams, he'd have probably found it easier to get in with a with a bigger team. So maybe Hill has a few years at McLaren before he retires or something. Who knows? So... Yeah, a very interesting one. But I think Schumacher was so good, I can't see it really impacting his reputation because the impact Schumacher had on Formula One, it wasn't just that he won a couple of championships in the mid-90s. It was that he was genuinely mega and, and changing the game. So I think even if Hill had managed to take 94 and 95, and I don't think 95, you can say even with 94 would be a foregone conclusion. I suspect it might still have gone Schumacher's way. But even then, I think Schumacher would still be the, the go-to guy. I think Ferrari would still want him. And probably things play out roughly similar with a little bit of localised disturbance around the Williams driver lineup. For instance, career, Hill's career, maybe Jacques, maybe Jacques Villeneuve never comes to Formula One. Who knows? I know that's the nightmare scenario for you. Yeah, I can't really look past that. That'd be horrendous. Um yeah, I think Schumacher still wins a 95 championship and maybe Hill just doesn't quite go to pieces in the same way, which obviously means he probably doesn't get replaced uh, in 97. So, yeah, diff- I agree with Ed. Different outcome, different spell of the 90s for Damon Hill. Probably no long-term impact, really, on Schumacher. Gary, let's get to your favourite question then uh, that you hinted at earlier. It's from Thomas Knight's who asks, how did Rubens Barrichello end up on the front row for Jordan at the Brazilian Grand Prix in 1996? Was this due to circuit-specific speed, or did it show that the 1996 Jordan was a car that achieved less than it should have over the season? Well, I think it did achieve less than it should have. Um, I think that was all down to our, you know, ourselves, I suppose you might call it. We, we had a decent car to start the season with, but it was very, very difficult to get more from it. Um, you know, normally what you have is a package that you're trying to develop as time goes by, and um, you're getting returns from wind tunnel uh, testing. And those wind tunnel results, those improvements dried up quite quickly um, after the car was initially sort of conceived and, and put on the track. So development-wise, it was it was tough. You know, it was it was hard work to try and change it um, as the season went by however on the on top of that as well the uh, the engine package we had the Peugeot engine obviously um, and it was a bit of a strange one and uh, we had it obviously in 95 as well after uh, McLaren decided they didn't want it anymore and we're going the Mercedes route as such or the Elmo route um, and we had quite a lot of problems in the first year we had quite a lot of problems really with air valve systems 
Um, but as the engine RPM sort of um, was improved, increased, um, we started to have a lot of problems with the, the flywheel. The flywheel was mounted obviously in the back of the crankshaft, flywheel and clutch. And as the season progressed, the clutch started to disintegrate. Um, during the race, you know, all the, we, we call it the fingers on the clutch diaphragm, I suppose, you'd, you'd come in at the end of the race, there was none left on it. Um, and that developed into then Peugeot cutting the revs, changing the engine a bit, making heavier flywheels, uh, steel flywheels, because they were cracking. Uh, and then you're just chasing the problem all the time. And the, and the real problem was the fact that the, the gear train on the engine was on the back of the engine. Uh, normally it was on the front of other engines, but it was on the back of the engine. So you had the rear main bearing carrying the crankshaft, and then you had a gear train, and then you had the flywheel. And as the crankshafts got lighter because the revs were going up, they became you know, a bit like a sort of um, a clothes hook, I suppose you might call it, very thin, uh, flexed a lot, uh, always within control, obviously, within the load that was required. But the fact they were flexing meant the flywheel was, was going through a bit of an oscillation, hanging that far out the back of the, main, the, the last main bearing. And that's what was causing, was causing it grief. So actually from Monza onwards, we changed from using uh, the clutch system that uh, Peugeot had. Um, we changed to running a, an AP clutch system with a very lightweight flywheel, um, a single plate clutch, which nobody had ever done in Formula One, um, because you just off the start line you just had to be a passenger, I suppose you might call it, just take the start as best you could. But it was the only way we could survive survive the race. Um, so it was a combination of starting the season quite well with the car that was very hard to develop aerodynamically. Uh, an engine that was caught, was getting more and more problems, so it was being down-tuned slowly as the season went by. So everything was working against you. The one thing it did lead to that that pro- program was um, we we redesigned the the front of the gearbox and actually ended up the, the last part of the season with the moving the clutch and the flywheel into the gearbox away from the crankshaft. So then you know the crankshaft could be as light as you wanted, and it didn't put any oscillation through the, the flywheel. It was, a, it was a whole new deal. Um, I went down to a very, very small um, pull-operated clutch, three-plate clutch. It was uh, less than eighty, less than 100 millimetres in diameter, which I'm very, very happy to say that nearly every team in the pit lane adopted at some point in time after that programme because it was a fantastic change. You know, it meant the crankshaft, the, the, the engine crankshaft height could be much, much reduced. Um, so the centre of gravity was lower and one thing or another. So out of everything bad comes something good. But as I say, the, the big problem with Jordan really was the, that the, we couldn't get the, the benefits from the wind tunnel research on the on the design concept. A bit like Mercedes at the moment, it happens. Um, but also we were getting down-tuned with the engine at the same time because of reliability issues. Yeah, lot, lots going on there. And obviously the car that followed up in 97 was pretty good. Uh, Ed, Jonathan Walters asks, what was the story with there being no airbox above the roll hoop on the Ferraris in the early Grand Prix of 1989? Yeah, it's an interesting one because it's very much out of keeping with the other cars that were there. Obviously, they got rid of it after four races. So in Mexico, they brought in the, the what you might consider the conventional airbox from there. And it's very much a carryover of the turbo cars because you didn't need that airbox in the, in the same way. Now, interestingly... I've yet to find somewhere where John Barnard has explicitly explained exactly the reasoning for this. I will try and get out of him, and maybe I'll uh, throw something in the Bring Back V10s community on Twitter when I get a, a confirmation. But that there's a couple of things at play. Obviously, fundamentally, and Gary might be able to add to this in a moment, you want 
for those normally aspirated engines, you want the ram effect in terms of the, the car moves through the air, shoving loads of air into the airbox for the engine because obviously air into the engine is a big power generator and that can be quite influential. So you don't get that same effect from having those sort of side intakes that they that they had. So I think that's kind of the big picture concept thing. I'm not 100% sure why they didn't start with it other than they just carried over. And I suspect there was perhaps an overestimation of the benefit you would have from having things a little bit more compact and a bit low because that was the, the kind of design that the previous Ferrari had and obviously the McLaren in 88 had. There was another factor as well, which was that there was a lot going on in terms of communication between the engine side and the chassis side. Barnard is on record as saying that he was misled in terms of various characteristics. The fuel consumption was one of those things, and actually the Mexico change allowed a little bit more fuel tank capacity. There was also cooling inaccuracy, so they were able to change a few things on the cooling when they repackaged things, as well as obviously making the sides a little bit more compact so they didn't have to have those side intakes. So yeah, it was a little bit of a carryover of a concept. Maybe it made sense with the original numbers, but just the benefit of the conventional airbox or the ram effect in terms of engine performance was significant. So I would ask Gary, what what's the kind of horsepower benefit from getting that right against not having anything? Obviously on a turbo car, you don't need it because you've got forced induction, but that's quite powerful, isn't it, in terms of what you can get out of an engine? Yeah, it is It is quite powerful. I mean, having that, that uh, ram pressure, as you call it, on the airbox intake, uh, you know, that means that the airflow up there is also, you know, it's pretty decent airflow. It's not so very turbulent. It's cooler. Uh, and you get maybe 30 millibars on the, on, if you've got a good airbox system, you get maybe 30 millibars of pressure on there, which in reality at that time was probably, you know, worth 20, 15 to 20 horsepower. So you can't throw it away. You know, it's very important as part of the jigsaw. Um, you just need to make sure that you get it fairly consistently. You know, we saw... Let's go through the years about Michael Schumacher and the Ferrari whenever he went there driving along with his head out the side of the cockpit just because his head was influencing the, the airbox. So there's all those things to take into consideration. And that's really why the, the airboxes, have, again, go back to the 97 Jordan and, um, and I think the Williams at the same time sort of generated this undercut airbox intake, I suppose you might call it. So you allowed the flow to come off the driver's helmet and go into that undercut underneath the the airbox intake, which meant that the flow into the airbox was much, much more consistent. So, you know, you can't just have it and it works. You just have to have it and then optimize it as well. So perhaps that, you know, Ferrari just didn't optimize it at that point in time. It could be the driver's helmet was affecting it because at that point in time, the, the rollover bar clearance uh, on the driver's helmet wasn't really as defined as it as it became. So there are lots of reasons for everything. But they're, they're, the, if you've got a decent flow to that intake, uh, and it's cooler, cooler, fresher air that high up from the track, away from the car, and you've got the boost pre the pressure on it. Then, as I say, it's 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 quite a reasonable horsepower return. And if you go back to you know after Ayrton Senna's accident, when Max the Max and Bernie show decided to cut the slots out of the back of the airbox, so there was um, to reduce that airbox pressure to reduce the power of the engine. And that was the reason they were there was a slot at the back that had to be as big as the intake at the front just to reduce that boost pressure. So, yeah, like anything, you have to make it work for you, but it's it was an advantage if you did that. I'm glad they made the change because uh, I think it looked a lot better once they put the conventional airbox on it. But we, one day we will do the Brazilian Grand Prix of 1989, the first race of the era, won by that Ferrari minus the, uh, the rollover hoop air intake, and uh, we'll look into it 
a bit more then. But one thing we can say is that the the creation of that car was incredibly disrupted uh, by unreliability of the semi-automatic gearbox that was revolutionary at the time, and also just the huge politics going on at Ferrari. You know, Ed talked about communication breakdown. There was there was a lot going on behind the scenes working against Barnard then as well. So it wouldn't be a surprise to hear that the initial creation of that car was perhaps a bit haphazard. But let's stick with Ferrari. Uh, Matt Baker asks, would Senna at Ferrari have worked? And Matt says, Ferrari succeeded when Schumacher, Tot, Braun and Byrne all pulled together. Would this have happened if Senna was there instead of Schumacher? I'd love to have seen it, but find it difficult to imagine. As Mark Hughes said in our Donington 93 episode, Senna was out for Senna. So Matt, what do you think of all of that? And can you see a world in which it's Ayrton Senna who leads the Ferrari revolution instead of Michael Schumacher? Yeah, definitely. But it's a very different looking revolution. You know, Schumacher's rise was alongside the people who he took with him from Benetton to Ferrari. He was a a package with them. He would have been great wherever because he was that good. But the fact that uh, Roy Byrne, Ross Braun, who were proving themselves in F1 alongside Schumacher, came along with him, that was his route to making making Ferrari work. Senna Senna rose without that kind of technical gang around him you know it's not like he uh, it's not like he took all the best of lotus to make mclaren great at the end of the 80s he walked into a mclaren that was okay hadn't had a great 87 season against williams but mclaren was superb and senna elevated it to a, another level just through his own incredible performances but he didn't have to fix a team the closest that an established senna was going to get to fixing a team was actually relatively williams in 94 after its poor start and that was not exactly a team in a mess like ferrari when schumacher got there that was a team that had a blip um, with a change of regulations and was was going to get back on top and you know swiftly did have the fastest car at times late that season certainly in 95 so they're very different propositions that senna's got this kind of personality cult around him from a, a, an early part of his career schumacher didn't have that in the same way but yet let's say you know schumacher senna had talked about wanting to go to ferrari in a kind of romantic way at the end of his career how seriously he would have taken that romantic idea had ferrari been terrible at that point is is hard to say in in retrospect but let's say Senna likes what Jean Todd's doing um, and ends up at Ferrari roughly at the time Schumacher did. People would have gravitated there. That would have straight away, the combination of Jean Todd running the team sensibly and a driver of it and Senna's talent being there would have made Ferrari a much more appealing place to be. Ferrari would have listened to Senna in a way, end up listening to the kind of Todd, Braun, Byrne, Schumacher axis. So it would, I think it would have had exactly the same outcome with a different set of personnel and achieved in a in a very different sort of way, and and then we got back in the fancy driver market time again, and working out where does Schumacher end up if Ferrari's closed off to him, if Senna's still there, and that kind of thing. But I think the only thing you know, the only thing that stopped Prost making Ferrari a championship winner in that era was Senna being in the way in a McLaren. So you know, a few years later, Senna getting to a, a more sorted Ferrari that Jean Todd has started fixing, you know, is is an awesome combination still. But it might depend what Schumacher's got under him at that point. Just as a small addendum on the driver market impact, let's say Senna was at Ferrari and locked Schumacher out of it. Schumacher has said, I mean, I'm interviewing him about this at Interlagos, that he left Benetton because he knew it couldn't be sustained at the front for the long term. So let's say Ferrari wasn't an option for him. He's presumably either going to go to Williams or McLaren at some point. So that's an interesting what if. McLaren offered a lot more money as well. Um, I know... Schumacher's manager at the time, Willy Weber, has said that 
I think McLaren's base salary offer was uh, was even higher than Ferrari's. Uh, Williams were not really interested in getting anywhere near that. So my guess would be that he probably does. He goes to McLaren. Schumacher said several times during his career, and particularly at that time, that he didn't really like the idea of just jumping into the best car, which you know it was felt that Williams was at the time. So I guess the the lure of the money um, and the Mercedes connection. Mercedes always thought they would get Schumacher, and and it took them a lot longer than they anticipated. I guess in the end, yeah, instead of trying to fix Ferrari, he goes and fixes McLaren instead. Right, let's see if we can help Charlie Wigglesworth out here. Charlie wants to understand why nose designs fluctuated so much during this era. Uh, He says, after Tyrrell and Benetton pioneered the high noses, by the mid-90s, everyone had them. Then the late 90s McLarens had slightly lower noses and Ferrari made theirs much lower in the early 2000s. Drifting out of the V10 era, which I'll allow for the specifics of this question, by the late 2000s, nose tips were really low again. Then in the early 2010s, they went really high. And I'll add that uh, they were so high that F1 had to change the rules to bring them back down. So Gary, Charlie's question is, what were the advantages and disadvantages of high and low noses? Well, it's all about getting as much airflow as possible through between the front wheels. And obviously, it wasn't just the nose. The chassis went high as well in the middle of there so you had a, a big opening underneath the chassis as such uh, to the leading edge of the underfloor and then it was all part of that underfloor leading edge and, and the technology evolving um, the barge boards because there's no point in having all that flow if you don't do something with it and uh, you know the same the same still true to be honest um, I think if you change the regulations now and allowed for high noses the noses would would increase in height, but they're brought down now because of safety reasons. They, they don't want the cars flying over the top of each other. So it's it's always a circle of events. You know, if you took a you know early nineties car as such and just raised the nose up, um, a, a car that was de- that was developed and optimized, let's say for a low nose, and re- just raised the nose up, um, it just wouldn't be of any benefit. It would be a, a detrimental probably. So at the end of the day, it's just about satisfying all the needs going through the car and continually developing. And as time goes past, you know, there was various stages when the barge boards were, lo- were quite powerful, then they got less powerful, then they got more powerful. The leading edge of the side pods, the undercuts, it's, you know, I think Sarber first started the undercut in the radiator intake area. Um, yeah, all that stuff evolved through the same thing. You know, you, you, need, you need flow to get to the right areas and the high nose, low nose solutions was was always part of it. The, the problem really is that uh, you've got the front wing there as well. So you know, through the, the years, the, the nose got higher, the front wing went straight across uh, the, the front of the car, so it actually produced downforce in the middle of the car as well. So it was, uh, it's the flow coming off the trailing edge of that front wing that sort of the, the rest of the car sees. So the, it's a combination of all the parts of the jigsaw, trying to make them all work as, uh, together. Um, to develop the, the downforce you require out of the car and also just keeping the stability of balance. You didn't want the, the front wing to work really hard at, the, at high speed. So you'd get front wings that were that the airflow would separate on um, to reduce that load at high speed. And that separation then would hurt the car further downstream. So it's just a circle of events. It meant that depending upon the route you took, uh, you would end up with, with the package that you visibly saw. And I, I remember speaking to Edwin Newey once. Um, Ferrari were running, I think it was a three-element front wing or something at the time. 
everybody else was on two element front wings and um, Edwin and I were having a chat in a bar one night about aerodynamics as you do and uh, you know he was saying that he, he couldn't quite understand why you know why uh, Ferrari were running this three element front wing because every time they try it they lose downforce um, and you know I was trying to say to him I think it was just the the, uh, the sensitivity you know reduced the sensitivity on the front wing and you could have a, a, a more controlled airflow separation on it and it's interesting to see that through the years then you know I think you know we saw Adrian's cars with seven element front wings on them so it obviously once you latch on to it and what, what the benefits are then it outweighs the negatives and it's the same with the high nose you know it needs to be it's all part of a package it's not just one thing yeah, fair to say that Adrian got the hang of those front wings eventually. Uh, Ed, Chris Thompson's question is definitely made for you. Chris asks, just how good was Sauber's debut season in 1993? Yeah, it was genuinely very, very good. Scored on debut with JJ Leto, six at Kyle Army, seventh in the championship, level on points with Lotus, probably had the car to do a lot better. I think probably the statistic that's the most impactful that tells you how good this season with is that Sauber finished its first ru- its first lap racing in Formula One, running fourth and fifth in Kyle Army, so behind Prost, Schumacher and Senna went in that order. But that was pretty remarkable for a, a new team. Only 60, 65 people at this stage. Uh, I interviewed Peter Sauber about this some years ago. He actually chose Kyle Army 93 as the race of his life for that reason. But they did an amazing job, really, to produce a quick car capable of scoring points and that could have had a podium in Kyle Army, could have had a podium in Imola. Vendling had an engine failure, obviously Leto sixth place. He'd lost about two laps in the pits having a electronics box changed. So I think they didn't get the halo result that perhaps they deserved there. Very, very tidy, neat car. It actually had a bit of the Jordan 191s about it, not only in that it had a quite a nice, simple uh, black colour scheme. So uh, I always quite like those simple colour schemes. The green Jordan, obviously, is the other comparison, but also quite a nice, well-balanced, sensible car. Fifth fastest of the year on average as well, just like the the Jordan 191. So uh, I don't know whether Gary's got an opinion on the Sauber, but I thought that that along with Jordan in that era was the other team that came in and did a very good job, albeit with the caveat that they were more well-established from having run the the Sauber Mercedes Group C cars. So not quite the startup that Jordan was, so not quite the same romantic story, but still pretty impressive for for this period. Yeah, they they weren't quite a lock-up at Silverstone, when they started the program, so they'd had a lot of background. I mean, Jordan obviously had Formula 3000, which was more relative, I suppose, to Formula 1 at that point in time. But uh, Sauber had a lot of experience. But again, you know, I think they had a fantastic season and it was it was annoying, I suppose, the best way of putting it. But, you know, it was great to see it. Uh, I always love to see the, the underdog as such, giving the big boys a, a bit of a hard time. And Wendlinger was, during that period, obviously, with, with having run uh, Schumacher, at Spa in 1991, um, and the, the the sort of that group of German drivers that were driving the, the Mercedes sports car package, um, you know, Wendlinger was rated as very high on that list of uh, of drivers. Wendlinger was actually rated by Jochen Maas as as a, a better prospect than Michael Schumacher. So they didn't have a slouch in the car by any means. And I remember going testing uh, prior to the car running in, in 1993. Um, we were testing in um, Paul Ricard, I think. Yeah, it was Paul Ricard. And Rubens was running around in the in the, the Jordan with the Brian Hart engine. And uh, it was getting dark in the evening. Uh, you know, dusk was coming down, I suppose. And Rubens came in and said, you know, I can't see anymore. 
And with that Wendlinger was doing, you know, breaking, setting the fastest times of the day. And it just showed you, I think, just the, the difference in the, the commitment. Um, Wendlinger was very, very good at just getting the best out of the car. And I think his, his sports car experience really helped him quite a lot. Uh, we discovered then that Rubens needed to get an eye test and get something to, to help him see in the dark because it wasn't that, uh, well, he wasn't seeing very well. But yeah, he learned something every day of the week. Every day is a school day. Yeah, night vision goggles for Rubens Barrichello. Uh, we had a Carl Venlinger question that we've not been able to get in, actually. So nice to talk about him briefly there. Uh, Matt, you can take on this question. Um, people will see why I'm chuckling in a moment. Chris Zielinski wants to know why Jacques Villeneuve has a controversial cloud around him. Chris adds, uh, he's said some problematic things in the past, but so have lots of drivers, especially from the V10 era. I'm curious as to why the controversial label seems to follow Jacques more than other drivers. Oh, well, there are loads of reasons for this that kind of add up. And some of them are unfair. Some of them really aren't unfair. Now, I think... I think Villeneuve got a bit of a bad reputation early in F1 among kind of stuffy traditional people who were like, who is this uppity kid with purple hair sometimes and baggy overalls? I think that set a few people against him. So that there's there's people who found it controversial for you know, daft reasons early on. There, I think there were, there were people who maybe found him a bit of a disappointment if they were enormous fans of his dad, Gilles Villeneuve, who'd actually, who's, who died 14 years before Villeneuve came into F1. And, you know, I think I was trying to think like if, say, if, Senna had a had a child who came into F1 in 2008 and was a little bit of a quirky, strange character and not quite what people were expecting who had adored his dad. Um, you know, would they have been seen as a disappointment? Possibly. So there's, there's elements that were like against him. But also the biggest reason Villeneuve is seen as a controversial ca- character is because of things that come out of his mouth and always have done. And when he was in F1, the biggest reason was the kind of disparity often between what came out of his mouth and what he was actually achieving. There was a, uh, an element of hubris around things a lot of the time. Now, um, I do think Villeneuve was a superb driver at his best. I think some of his 96 races, some of his 98 and 2000 races in particular were absolutely brilliant. But even the creation of BAR, even the fact that in early 97, just he's not won a title yet. He's had one year in F1 and people are creating a kind of quote unquote super team around him just seemed a bit too bombastic, a bit over the top. A lot of his kind of manner of doing things seemed a bit like a, a bit of an affectation. There's lots of stories of him trying to intimidate teammates off track, with, like for instance, with Damon Hill and Damon just looking at him thinking, what are you doing? This is, this is ridiculous. And it's just, it's like, it doesn't come across as a, a natural way of thinking or being. It's like he's performing being Jacques Villeneuve too hard. And I think that would definitely wound people up. But then it's, it's the sheer volume of controversial comments and they've continued long after he's left F1. As a journalist, fantastic value. Of all the ex-world champions kicking around, he's the most likely to say something blunt and ridiculous that he probably doesn't even mean, but is great for a headline. But it did. It it would also bite him. You know, he was... He was very critical and disruptive around uh, the arrival of David Richards and Jensen Button at BAR, and then Button was getting a lot more out of the car than Villeneuve did. He was um, very blunt about how hopeless Felipe Massa was early in Felipe Massa's career. Then they end up as Sauber teammates, and Massa basically blows Villeneuve away at that point. I think Villeneuve's, you know, overall Villeneuve's potential was higher than Massa's, but at that end of the career, of their careers, Villeneuve wasn't really delivering. So. I would say it's basically because the gap between proclamations and achievement has been so vast so many times over a quarter of a century that even other slightly outspoken past world champions 
don't come close. And it's a shame because actually at his best, he was mega. Yeah, I definitely agree with everything Matt said there. I think ultimately with Villeneuve, though, he's said plenty of controversial things, but I don't think he's been too problematic with the stuff he said. He's maybe been a bit blunt. He's maybe lacked nuance sometime. But I, I don't think in terms of his public persona it's too problematic should we say maybe in teams a little bit more so but I think certainly he's someone who leans into that uh, being controversial in terms of saying things particularly in some of his media work in in more recent times but he's what people always say they want he's a character isn't he he's not afraid to say what he thinks he perhaps sometimes does exaggerate what he thinks for effect but I don't think you could ever really claim he's anything other than pretty authentic and I think that's a positive and I would just like to throw back in there, as we discussed a few weeks on the Imola 97 episode, every single thing he said about groove tyres and narrow track 98 cars was absolutely spot on, however outspoken he was. I'd wholeheartedly agree with all of that. They were ter- <laughs> terrible, absolutely terrible. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I, I thought it was important that someone else other than me answered that question. Um, I, I think it mainly boils down to, um, yeah, the, the way his career on track petered out he he didn't tone down his outspokenness so uh, over time he became rather than being a loudmouth who was at the front he became a loudmouth who was trailing off as a driver in a lot of people's eyes um and yeah for all the complaints you get even now you know jack will not hold back in saying what he thinks i think as has been mentioned i think he does he understands his value as a, as a quotable name in the F1 paddock and the, and the value that brings him in his media career to not hold back on what he thinks. And for all the complaints you get from people saying, oh, why is he mouthing off? Why does anyone care what he thinks? Yeah, we probably at the race don't use his Larry quotes as much as we might have in the past. But from working at Autosport, as an example, Jacques Villeneuve mouths off about a topic that's going to be a really popular story that lots of people read. So for all the people that complain that they don't want to hear about his his views, his outspoken views, lots of people, you know, tens of thousands at the very least, will read stories where he's saying something outspoken. So there's an appetite for that. And um, yeah, if everyone was the same, if everyone stayed in their lane and played safe, the world would be a boring place, wouldn't it? So his outspokenness isn't why I'm a fan of him, um, but uh, I don't have a problem with it. So uh, let's move on. Uh, this one's interesting. Gary, you, maybe you can help us with this. Alan McCarthy has a Ford Cosworth question. Alan wants to know, why were all the engines in the early 2000s badged as Cosworth and not Ford? Especially as pre-2000, the engines were called Ford. So I think, Gary, really, it boils down to here. Once Ford really came in, ramped everything up, they owned Cosworth, they bought a team, turned it into Jaguar, why wasn't it Jaguar Ford? Why was it Jaguar Cosworth? Well, I think that sort of answers itself, I suppose you might call it. I mean, uh, Ford bought Cosworth in 1998. Uh, prior to that, for many years, decades, they were involved with Cosworth. Um, you could classify it as a sponsor. I mean, they put money into Cosworth to, to keep Cosworth alive and to be, at that point, that period, a Ford Cosworth because they were putting money into it. But then they suddenly became the owners of Cosworth. And... Um, I think all of that, you've got to say the step back because Ford, you know, it just didn't want to be Ford. Um, it, it wanted Cosworth to be its own its own entity. And I think you can see the same, you know, when when, it, when when they bought Jaguar, it was Jaguar. It wasn't, it didn't become Ford. It didn't become just part of the, the conglomerate that is Ford. So I think they, they tried to allow the companies that they bought to stand on their own two feet. 
Uh, and that's why they sort of separated a little bit with the name. They didn't need to have the, the name on the cam covers of the, of the car engine anymore because they owned the company. So they allowed Cosworth to stand on its own two feet as a name. Um, and it was the same with, as I say, with Jaguar. So it's, it's sort of, I suppose it's a philosophy within the company as to what you need for, for your own credibility, your own recognition. And if you're not there as a sponsor, you don't actually need the, the name on it because you are, you are the owner. So it's a sort of circle of events, I think. Would it have done any good to have had you know, Ford on the, on the cam covers of the engines during the 2000s? Would people have associated it? You know, it's, it's difficult to say. I think Cosworth was a, was a good name, is a good name. Cosworth was a good name to have on there. I mean, the, the engines they brought to, to the Formula One are fantastic um, all through the era of, of different, all the different engine solutions from, you know, the, the early DFEs right through to the, to the latter um, V8s. They brought engines that were very high in performance and commercially, I suppose you could call it available. So I think it was the right thing not to call them a Ford, to leave Cosworth as its own, as its own entity. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, the next question seems most suited to Ed, but Gary or Matt can, can volunteer a suggestion as well if they have one. Andrew Sillett wants to know, who had the best pointless season in the V10 era? Andrew's suggestions are Alonso in the Minardi in 2001 or Villeneuve's first year at BAR. But he also asked if there was perhaps a pre-qualifier who deserves a mention. So Ed, do you have one? I think the answer is probably in the question in that Fernando Alonso's 2001 season was absolutely extraordinary. Villeneuve in 1999 is a great shout as well as he was 11th fastest driver on average, spent 99 laps in the points, but only finished four times. But there is a better season than that, which is Pierluigi Martini for Minardi in 1990. He was the 10th fastest driver on average that season on qualifying pace, aided a bit by the Pirelli rubber. Never managed to score though, despite seven finishes. I'd also throw in Evan Capelli's 1989 season for Leighton House on Honourable mention there. 15th fastest on average, spent 79 laps in the points, but only finished the race twice. And one of those many retirements was well in the hunt for a really great result at the French Grand Prix. Of those who were often not pre-qualifying, Nicola Larini's 89 Acela season was pretty good. Eight failures to pre-qualify, just one finish, but quick and limited machinery. Almost took a stunning result in Montreal as well. Very good in 91 for modern Lamborghini too. Gabriele Tarquini's 1991 campaign for AGS was a good effort, despite rarely making it onto the grid for an ailing team. And also Roberto Moreno, good pair of pre-qualifying hands for Eurobrun in 1990. And that helped him as well to leap into the Benetton when Nanini was injured towards the end of the year. Perhaps surprisingly, one name that does also stand out is Olivier Gruyard. Better driver than many remember because he's mostly celebrated as a backmarker menace who was very stubborn when being lapped. But his 1990 season for Tanya Seller had its moments. Actually, he's the driver who was in pre-qualifying but didn't score over a season who comes out with the best ranking as he was the 28th fastest driver of 1990. But very difficult to compare him because that was a one-car team that year. And actually, comparing teammates in these minnow pre-qualifying teams is really tricky because there was often quite a big disparity in terms of the machinery. So often you're looking for little heroic one-offs. So from that perspective, probably Moreno's Andrea Moda season in 92, where he somehow hauled it onto the grid at Monaco, was pretty sensational. Although, as we talked about in our Andrea Moda episode, Perry McCarthy didn't have anything like the machinery to do that. It was all thrown at Moreno's car. So, yeah, very, very difficult to judge. But it's the usual suspects, those who would do great things in back 
of the grid cars. I'd, I'd throw in Pierre-Henri Raffinel as well, who had that mega qualifying performance at Monaco in 1989 in a season in which he otherwise never made the grid. He was either eliminated in pre-qualifying or qualifying. Yeah, Ed, Ed's crucial there thing for me there is one-offs. I I, I, tr- I really wanted to get a really obscure z- obscure zero-point scorer to throw into this, but like you say, Moreno qualifying and Andrea Moda was amazing. There were there were there were some good pre-qualifiers there. I tried really hard to go. Was Giancarlo Fisichella's half Minardi season that good? No, it wasn't. It wasn't really. Not looking at his performances relative to Pedro Lamy for consistent excellence, race after race, not resulting in a point. Nothing touches what Alonso did with Minardi in two thousand and one. The big thing during that period, obviously, we got to remember is points weren't handed out willy nilly. You know, you you had to finish top six, so you could actually be uh, you could actually finish to, in the seventh every race week and and, and uh, have a great season and uh, zero points at the end of it. So. It wasn't easy to score points then because you know they were uh, they were hard to come by. Yeah, agreed. And uh, I don't know. I, I quite liked I quite liked points being harder to come by, but that's a debate for another time. For the final question, we've got a slightly philosophical one. Uh, Rishi asks, "What has been the biggest thing you've learned during these seven series of making the podcast?" And Rishi's prompt for asking this was the number of two thousand and four episodes we've done. And asking if that reflects on us revising our opinion on if 2004 was actually a good season. I will quickly tackle that before I throw to the guys to get their answers to what I think is a really great and different question. When I did my first ever stint of work experience at Autosport in 2004, they gave me their back page to write, I think just to get rid of me on on a Monday press day, keep me out of the way. And I, I wrote something back then in 2004 saying if you took Michael Schumacher out of the picture, 2004 had been a really interesting season with lots going on and a mixed up order um, to, compared to what we'd seen in the years prior to that. So I would say it hasn't, for me personally, the, the number of 2004 episodes you've done doesn't reflect a changing of my opinion because I felt that at the time. And actually just 2004 was interesting just behind the guy who was who was winning all the races. But Matt, is there anything that stands out for you? With Like I say, I'm fascinated by this question. And I have no idea what anyone else is going to pick as an answer. Mostly just how much it turns out I was completely wrong about in the 90s. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, there's been great little facts, like you know, even in this episode alone, I was a massive Jordan fan in early 96 and getting Gary's detailed explanation of the real story behind all those times. I got excited about Barrichello qualifying really well and then it all went horrible. That Those little nuggets are great, but the overall picture is, you know, I was a, I was a kind of hardcore super fan in the 90s as a, as a teenager, then then started working as a journalist and sort of actually drifted away from following F1 that closely for bit because covering other things but my hardcore superfan era all my opinions were so cemented as absolute fact and actually revisiting some of these races during these series stuff like i, I had a really strong conviction that for instance 97 was much better than it it looked and that there were some really strong race performances that were criminally un, unrewarded by bad luck no no it was it was rubbish and doing you know doing some bring back v10s researchers just underlined that it was rubbish and almost Almost every opinion I held really strongly, apart from that Nigel Mansell was infuriating, that one I'm stuck with no matter how much research I do. Every other opinion I've, I've been able to challenge and realise that most things I felt really strongly about when I was aged 15 to 17 were just nonsense. Well, I'm glad we could help you on that journey. Uh, Ed, anything for you? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting selection of things, I guess. You always, 
a reminder of a lot of the detail that's vanished because obviously everything becomes very low resolution from afar doesn't it seasons get boiled down into a few little bits and races and you forget a lot of the the kind of little bumps in the road and the little details and the what might have been and that kind of thing i think probably the thing that it's i'm slightly distorting the question here but the thing i found it's very useful for is it's a good way so having been a fan through most of this era, obviously I started to work as a journalist with Autosport for the final years of, of this era. But it's a good chance to kind of stay regularly connected to the kind of the fan bit in the back of your mind, if you like, which does actually help a lot in terms of the coverage you're doing now, because that's what pretty much everyone reading our contemporary coverage is is doing. So I quite like it from that perspective. And it also just allows you to regularly consider the kind of the evolution of formula one in this period which is always a very interesting thing we talk about how people like schumacher influenced the driver evolution and it, it just sets in your mind a lot of those threads to how f1 got to where it is today as well as just being good fun but the final thing i should say is i was caught out by a listener at one stage because i remember at one stage complaining about um a race being described as boring and i may have accidentally described 2004 as boring uh so they, they kind of hoist me by my own petard on that one but it's a good reminder actually particularly with something like 04 that the the, the way the racing panned out in 04 was quite often not not great but even in that season, the storylines that run through it are brilliant. So there's a there's a bit of a smorgasbord of things I've thrown at it there, but those those are the things that leap to mind. Yeah, I think that sums up the question, really. Uh, and the, the big thing for me, beyond what I said about 2004, is just the detail. Like like Matt, I was a hardcore fan during this time. I was reading all the magazines. I was absorbing as much coverage as I could. But everything gets boiled down to kind of the headlines. And this show is about digging out behind the headlines i'll give you australia 2002 which you've just done is a great example of that yes that race is remembered for a massive start pile up and mark weber's minardi but it's all the other things that were going on that we get to talk about that no one else is going to do and i, I think that's a badge of honor for the show now gary i wasn't sure you'd have anything to say for this question because you were there already you were in the middle of it you were living it firsthand so i doubt this podcast is teaching you anything you didn't already know uh have we have we done anything for you with all the episodes that we've had you on well yeah no for sure because you know when you're living in the middle of it sometimes you can't see the the, the wood for the trees you know you have to get outside of it and have a look in and that's what this podcast's about it's about getting outside of it and having a look in because everybody's got a different opinion just to go back to uh, what matt was saying earlier on about about uh, if schumacher had stayed at benetton and so on and so forth and not gone to ferrari uh, and that Berger won in, in uh, Germany in 1997. But the thing you got to remember there was, you know, was Berger as good as, as Schumacher? Well, you know, Giancarlo Fisichella almost won that race in the Jordan. Um, he, he qualified second by a mere, you know, thousandths of a second um, and was leading the race. Uh, and the, the end result was he ran over a, a bit of a, uh, a Cosworth engine from Jan Magnussen's uh, Stewart. It was lying in the middle of the track. I think it was a bit of a Conrod cut the rear tire and you know ripped the oil cooler off the car so there's all these sets of circumstances that you forget all about from my point of view because you were involved with it at the time you, you know you knew they happened but you've moved on to the next part of it and to go back through this sort of rings that bell again as to you know yeah i remember that now yeah it's, it's quite interesting so it's it's been very very valuable to me to sort of uh look back through time i suppose you might call it having as i say been in the middle of the forest and couldn't see out for for all that period in time. Now you know you get a look from the outside, and it's it's uh, it's quite different. 
Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good summary. And that's a big part, as I said, of what, what the show is supposed to be about. It's one of the reasons that I'm sure the amount of research it requires to do it for every episode is, is incredibly bad for my health in the long term. But I'm glad everybody's getting something out of it. And uh, let's end Series 7 there then. Um, I'm pretty confident that's the most questions we've ever got through in one go during one of these episodes. So thank you to Gary, Ed and Matt for helping us do that and for helping us see out Series 7. And as I say, thank you to everyone who listens and interacts with the show. As I mentioned there, the the amount of work that goes into this, not just from me, from everyone who has to then go back and look through all the stuff I dig out to refresh their memories. Um, it takes up a lot of time. It takes up a lot of effort. And without your continued support, this show wouldn't still exist. You know, it... it, it it's too big a job to do it uh, for nobody just because we enjoy it. So so please keep listening. And um, as long as you do, we'll make sure the show sticks around. Now, if you're part of our members club, you've got your exclusive bonus episode coming up in a few weeks. We will give ourselves a breather before we get to that. And please head over to our Just Giving page to support Blood Cancer UK and ask a question about any era of F1 history for our charity special, um, which I say will be, that will be released in the public feed. And we'd love to have as many of you as possible to join our Twitter community so we can keep the V10 fire burning through the coming months until it's time for Series 8. The Athletic.